Psalm 8. O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. You have set your glory above the heavens. Out of the mouth of babes and infants, you have established strength because of your foes. To still the enemy and the avenger. When I look at your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars which you have set in place, what is man that you are mindful of him, and the son of man that you care for him? Yet you have made him a little lower than the heavenly beings, and crowned him with glory and honor. You have given him dominion over the works of your hands. You have put all things under his feet, all sheep and oxen, and also the beasts of the field, the birds of the heavens, and the fish of the sea, whatever passes along the paths of the seas. O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. Heavenly Father, Lord, we thank you for these, these holy and sacred words. And Father, we pray for your blessing this morning. As we look to your word, Father, we pray that you would be pleased to open our hearts to your word. Open your word to our hearts. We recognize, Father, that we are utterly, utterly, utterly dependent upon you, Father, should we profit from these holy and sacred truths. So meet us here, we pray, in Jesus' name, amen and amen. Since the one message didn't get recorded, I've been nervous about the recorder that's behind me. I'm always afraid it's not working, so uh, feeling a little insecure that that thing was working this morning. I thought I'd better take another glance at it. Um, I think all of us would agree that uh, these are difficult times in our country. Is that a, so do we agree about that? Um, yesterday morning about 9.30, I sat down and was really kind of putting together an outline for this morning's message. And I was looking over Psalm 8 and the many truths that are here, the thrust of the, the, the message of Psalm 8, the, the thrust of it and I was very excited about preaching on it. And then it's dawned on me that really this, I've been looking forward to Psalm 8. I've been looking forward to it for weeks because it's such a timely psalm for where we are right now as a nation. And yesterday morning, it seemed to me that given our memories what they are, that it's really easy. And this is, it just is what it is. It's easy to preach a message. It's easy for us to hear a message. And then 24 hours go by, 48 hours go by, 72 hours go by. And how much of it remains behind? You know, it's, it's our, our memories, they are what they are, you know. Uh, and don't think that this diminishes in any way what we do. God has ordained preaching. He's ordained this as a means for our growth. And we can clearly look at each other and look at one another and see that we are growing as we uh, fix our gaze upon God's word and we center uh, our ministry on Christ Jesus and his word. Uh, but that having been said, I think we need to pause with Psalm 8. And I think we need to do 
a little series on it. Uh, probably five or six weeks, uh, we'll be looking at Psalm 8. Because uh, there's such a powerful message here for us. And I think it's a very timely message for us. You, you know, tomorrow morning we're going to get up and we're going to go to work. And uh, undoubtedly, we're probably going to be hearing probably no small amount of grumbling and complaining. Right? You know, some of you are smiling. You're anticipating it. In fact, some of you already know what's going to be sad, don't you? It's August in northeastern United States. You've seen, some of you, the forecast. It's going to be hot, isn't it? It's going to be muggy. So undoubtedly, there'll be people who will be complaining that it's hot and it's muggy. Um... You know, 90 days from now, the same people are going to be complaining that it's cold. In a very short period of time, we're going to be turning on our furnaces. Um, Me, I I mean, I'm just as uncomfortable as everybody else in the summertime when it gets like this. But I don't I don't really like to complain about it because I love summer so much. I got other complaints that I do. I don't want you to think I'm exempt from this. I grumble and complain, too. Another common one we might hear tomorrow is, it's Monday. How are you doing? It's Monday. Monday bad. Tuesday bad too, too close to Monday. Wednesday only good because it's halfway. Thursday is only good because it's the evil Friday. Friday good. Uh, Only one day of the week good, Friday. All kidding aside, I've often observed that folks that really march to the beat of this drum aren't really that happy on the weekends either. You ever notice that? And really, I think for most of us, I think our perfect day is a day of maybe 72 degrees. Does that sound good? 72, 73, give or take a degree or two with a relative humidity of where? What do you want it to be? 40%? Does that sound good? Because usually on those days you have the blue sky, which is not bad this morning, is it? You have that blue sky, that beautiful blue sky. And, and uh, on those days, you will hear a lot, of, a lot of folks say, man, it's a gorgeous day. And I know that when we have days like that, people usually are a little more upbeat, aren't they? What do you suppose the leading cause of all of this is? That's what I want to talk about this morning. There's many causes to this, but I would submit to you that one of the leading causes of this is that we're always looking down. We're always looking down. And uh, we might ask ourselves, why are we always looking down? Well, it's because we have diminished God. I want to speak about God for a moment with a lowercase g, you know? Just imagine, get rid of the uppercase g and just put a lowercase g in. God, I'm saying this because this is not a reflection of the true God. But in many of our minds, I, this this is God. He is more like a a force, if you will, or more like some kind of power than he is uh, a personal being kind of like uh, maybe nuclear energy or electricity or something. You know? uh, 
made a living for a, a lot of years working as an electronic technician, you know, playing around with electronics and learned a lot about electronics through those years. One thing I can say about electronics is uh, electricity is not very personal, you know. Uh, when you get zapped real good, like I've been zapped many times, it's nothing personal. It's not like it's ornery and it's saying, you know what, ooh, ooh, look at the way he jumped. Oh, let's get him again. It doesn't do that. It's impersonal. It's just, a, it's just a obeying the laws of nature, isn't it? It's uh, just obeying God's laws, which he has ordained for it. You can, you can predict it. It's predictable. It's steady. Uh, if it weren't, we wouldn't have these little black things. Some of them aren't black, but you know, those little things we talk in and we do practically everything with. You can tune your car with one of them. I'm amazed by all the apps that we have for these phones today. Uh, I got a tuner on them. I can tune my guitar with my phone. You know, it's really, uh, there's no end to the creativity of what people will come up with with these apps. Uh, some of you have grown up, you really probably never knew a day where you didn't have a phone in your hand, but uh, many others, I mean, I, we went about our day without a phone and didn't think much about it, did we? It's uh, the other day, I forgot my phone at home, and I had a strange kind of feeling about that. As I, well, I don't have my phone, and I thought to myself, "This is crazy. I never had a phone. I mean, but now I don't have my phone, and it's some kind of problem. Um, if I keep it up, I'm going to forget where I was at." Uh, we're talking about impersonal forces. Electricity is an impersonal force, and in many many folks' mind, God is like this impersonal force, like this higher power. But for others, God is kind of like a super version of ourselves, a super version of ourselves. Uh, he's super kind. He's super good. He's uh, super gracious, uh, not necessarily concerned or probably in some respects divorced from morality. You know, he's not that he's not that concerned about right and wrong, really. I mean, he'd like you to be good if you could, but he don't care if you get ornery. He don't care if you, if you do this or if you do that. He's, he's okay with it. Righteousness is not necessarily really important. Uh, as long as you can do enough good things to kind of counterbalance the bad things in the end of the day, uh, we'll, we'll be okay. Uh, justice is not really on the radar uh, too much. And, you know, as I'm explaining this, really, it's, God is, in this respect, really kind of a super version of the self. Just a superversion of ourselves. We're not that concerned about morality, so he's not that concerned about reality. Um, I think that's one of the reasons why we're always looking down. Another reason why we're always looking down is because we've pushed God far away. We've pushed him far away. And I say we as humanity. We've pushed God far away. We've pushed him uh, all the way until we need something. Uh, when we need something, then we invite him in uh, in order to get what we want. Uh, I think it was around seven years ago, I was in East Liverpool, uh, just walking around the streets, just right across the river here downtown, just walking uh, the streets and asking people, whoever would talk with me, questions about their faith. I would just approach folks, and uh, if they seemed somewhat inviting, I would say, listen, I'm from... Tri-State Community Church, we're just asking people questions about their faith today. you mind if I ask you a couple of questions? And I came across this young man, and, and um, I, I asked him those very questions. You know, you mind if I ask you a few questions about your faith? And 
he very wonderfully invited uh, the, the questions. We talked for 45 minutes, and I was really encouraged because we were touching on the nuts and bolts of the gospel in that period of time, and I invited him to church. I invited him here. And the following Sunday, he was sitting here. And I thought, wow. I mean, when he came walking, when, when he came to church, I thought, wow, Lord's really answering prayers. He's, and he came for a couple of weeks. He had fallen into some trouble, and he had a sentence hearing coming up. And I joined him in prayer. I prayed that, you know, God's will would be done and really prepared him that, you know, it might be God's will that, you know, he was facing some potential jail time. And it may be God's will that you, you go to jail. I mean, I don't want you to think that, you know, if you, if, you, if you do have to go to jail, that God turned his back on you. It may be his will that you, you go. And he's like, okay, okay. Well, his sentence hearing came up and he received mercy from the courts. He pretty much was let go. I don't even think he had much of a fine. It was really amazing. I never spoke to him again in a meaningful way after that. I saw him twice after that. I saw him once at McDonald's and I I think to my measure of faith, it looked like he was trying to avoid me, but in God's providence, it was hard for him because we ended up in line right next to each other. And I just said, hi, how you doing? We haven't seen you in a while. How you been? And he couldn't, it just seemed like he couldn't get away from me fast enough. I don't use this example to, to tear this young man down. He's not doing anything that any one of us wouldn't be doing if it wasn't for the grace of God touching our hearts. Because we push God away, left to ourselves, until we need something. Why? Because we love to look down. We're constantly looking down. But if you look at the psalmist here in verse 1, the psalm is different than the psalms we've studied up to this point. Notice what the the psalmist does. He looks up. He says, O Lord. And notice the pronoun there. Our Lord. He doesn't say, O Lord, my Lord. He says, O Lord, our Lord. I've I've, um, introduced you to the category of the individual met. I'm not going to introduce you to some of the other categories because scholars are always trying to get... uh, real sophisticated with the categories of these psalms. And and one scholar, I forget who said it, kind of jokingly said, listen, what we're ending up with here is 150 different categories. Uh, That's not very useful. But I would say in a broad sense, Psalm 8 is indeed in a specific category, and it's, it's referred to as a hymn. Notice the R. The psalmist is looking up, but he's not doing it alone, is he? He's saying, oh, Lord, our Lord. This is a community hymn. It's a community hymn of praise. Now, our translation, really, the the, the English translations, this is one place where the English translations really, um, we lose something very significant here. Notice, and I've pointed it out many times, that Lord is capitalized. All L-O-R-D is capitalized. This is one of the neat places where we have... Lord fully capitalized, and then Lord only with an L capitalized, right in one little line there. Oh, Lord, 
our Lord. Uh, literally, what's going on here is, O Yahweh, our Adonai. O Yahweh, our Adonai. It's much more personal. Uh, our translation is using a title and in place of the uh, personal name of God. And the psalmist and his company, the people of God, are saying, O Yahweh, our Adonai. Who is Yahweh? You know, this, this name appears thousands of times in the Bible. Thousands of times. In Genesis 2.4, he is the creator of the heavens and the earth. He is the creator. He is our creator. He is the one who has created the heavens, the earth, and everything that's in them. And in Genesis 17, he is the one who has given the covenant sign of circumcision to Abraham. And because of this, he is often the, the uh, Yahweh is referred to as the covenantal name. Has anybody heard that phraseology before? The covenantal name. You know, let, let me flesh that out a little bit because that sounds, it's, it's terminology that sounds like it really belongs in the law courts and in the judiciary system, and it does. Uh, in many ways, this is a judiciary term. Uh, let, let me flesh it out and, and unpack it a little bit. Uh, God is a covenantal God. He is a covenant-keeping God. Let's say it this way. He's a faithful God. He's a promise-keeping God. He is a God of steadfast love. See, we're saying the same thing with those categories. I was trying to communicate this to the children Wednesday night that God is a God, our God is a God who makes promises. He makes lots of promises in the scriptures, doesn't he? We can trust him because he keeps every one of them and he has a perfect track record at keeping them. You can Search through the Bible. When you read it, look for promises. Look for them all over the place. And when you find them, rejoice in them. Take joy in them. Because you can count on them. Why? Because Yahweh is the one who's made them. He's a covenant-keeping, promise-keeping, faithful, steadfast love God. It's also in Exodus, rather, chapter 3, I... Really, if you'd like, I invite you to turn there. We're going to spend a couple of minutes there. If you, you want to keep your place in Psalm 8 and turn to Exodus 3. When we think of the name Yahweh, really Exodus 3 should come up. Page 46, if you're using the church's Bible. story in the life of Moses, verse 1. He's keeping the flock of his father-in-law Jethro, uh, the priest of Midian, and he led his flock to the west side of the wilderness. So he's out in the wilderness, if you will, probably in many respects something that's more more resembles a desert than, uh, than what we would commonly think of a wilderness. He came to Horeb, the mountain of God, and the angel of the Lord, see the Lord, capital L-O-R-D, uh, the angel of the Lord, sometimes you'll hear the phrase, Malach Yahweh, uh, the angel of the Lord uh, appeared 
to him in a flame of fire out of the midst of a bush. Moses looked and behold, the bush was burning, yet it was not consumed. A couple, uh, well, I think it was last Friday, not this Friday past, but the previous Friday, we had all of the grandchildren at the house and we had a little campfire going in our backyard. We had to keep tossing wood on it as we do with campfires and, you know, the wood changes colors as the, uh, as it's engulfed in the flames, doesn't it? It uh, changes colors. It undergoes changes. Uh, but here Moses is going through the wilderness and he uh, notices a bush, you know, green, undoubtedly green and quite healthy. Its leaves not withering in any respect, yet it's engulfed in flames. This is uh, emblematic of an inexhaustible life. Inexhaustible life. A life that uh, is not exhausting or not uh, dissipating uh, as it uh, goes on. Uh, You know, our lives are indeed exhaustible, aren't they? You know, I I still have a, a lot of energy, but I will confess I don't have as much energy as I once did. Uh, some of us can say that. Uh, I am thankful for the energy I have, but I can tell that's not what it used to be. Uh, my life is not uh, inexhaustible. But here, this bush burning, yet not being consumed in any way, remaining perfectly healthy in the midst of the flames, is emblematic of an inexhaustible life. So when we think of Yahweh, uh, he, he, he is uh, self-existent. Uh, he doesn't expire in, in any way. Moses turns aside, verse 3, to see what's up with this bush. Verse 4, when the Lord saw, notice capital L-O-R-D, when Yahweh saw that he turned aside uh, to see, God called to him out of the bush, Moses, Moses. Moses replied, here I am. Then God said, do not come near, take your sandals off your feet. For the place on which you are standing is holy ground. Where is Moses standing? He's standing somewhere in the wilderness, on the mountain of God. Uh, yet suddenly uh, he is called upon to take off his shoes. One of the problems we have today is we don't take off our shoes. I'm not speaking literally here. Uh, we wander into God's presence like we're... Uh, just wandering into anyone's presence. God is holy. Yahweh is holy. Take off your shoes, Moses. The ground that you're standing on is holy. Why? Because of Yahweh's presence. And then in verse 6, Yahweh says, I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob. And Moses hid his face, for he was afraid to look at God. Now, by the time of Moses, Abraham and Isaac and Jacob had long since uh, departed from this life. They're long since, centuries earlier, they're deceased. Uh, Yet God says, I am the God of Abraham. I am the God of Isaac. I am the God of Jacob. And Jesus interprets this for us in the Gospels when he says that God is God of the living. He's the God of the living, not the God of the dead. So Yahweh is the source of life and he is the sustainer of life. The source of life 
and the sustainer of life. And then in verse 7, quite frankly, I think verses 7 and 8 are two of the most beautiful verses in the Old Testament. I used to quote them all the time. I used to paraphrase them. Then the Lord said, I have surely seen the affliction of my people who are in Egypt and have heard their cry because of their taskmasters. I know their sufferings and I have come down to deliver them out of the hands of the Egyptians to bring them up out of that land to a good and broad land, land flowing with milk and honey to the place of the Canaanites and etc., etc. I used to quote these verses all the time, especially when I was doing ministry at Columbia County Jail. I used to quote it this way. The Lord has heard the sound of the cry of his people and he has come to deliver them. Isn't that beautiful? Yahweh is a deliverer. He is a deliverer. That's his whole point, calling Moses, by the way, to himself. He's raising Moses up to deliver his people. We could say much more about that. We'll revisit that here in a few moments. Back to Psalm 1. Psalmists and the congregation are looking up. They're not looking down. They're looking up. They're looking up at Yahweh. Oh, Yahweh, our Adonai. Our Adonai. If you, you don't really need to turn there if you just think uh, for a moment with me. It's a verse that's well known to many of you in Isaiah's vision in Isaiah chapter 6. Isaiah, just one single verse. Isaiah says, in the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord. And in this case, it's capital L, lowercase o, lowercase r, lowercase d. The, the word that's being translated is Adonai. In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw Adonai sitting upon a throne, high and lifted up, and the train of his robe filled the temple. What is going on there? First of all, Adonai is sitting on a throne. But he's not only sitting on a throne, but the train of his robe is actually consuming the entire temple. What is the significance of that? Well, if you've seen movies of uh, ancient times where kings and queens and what have you uh, were uh, uh, attending some kind of ceremony, uh, you'll notice that uh, the, the dress code is uh, appropriate to the status of the one wearing the garb. In other words, uh, nobles uh, would be uh, dressed in a different way than commoners. And then uh, the nobles would be dressed appropriate to their status uh, in the royal government of the land. Uh, the king or the queen being the most ornately uh, 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 dressed, if you will. We still do this, although I think we're losing this in our culture, but we still do this at weddings. The bridal party sometimes exhibits this quite well where you have the bridal party, you, you have the bride and the maid of honor and then the bridesmaids. And it would be absolutely inappropriate for the bridesmaids to be dressed in such a way that they upstaged the bride, would it not? And it would be really somewhat inappropriate for the bridesmaids to upstage the maid of honor. And it certainly would be inappropriate for the maid of honor to upstage the bride. Why? It's the bride's hour. It's her hour. And the significance of the, the dress, especially if you go back a little bit and look at some of the traditional dresses, we're losing this. But if you go back a little bit and you look, the long train, 
that's behind the dress had significance to it. It says, ah, you, you, you might not know anybody involved. The idea is you could step in there and not know a single person, but you could pick out the pecking order. These are bridesmaids. They're very important to the bride. That's why they're there. They're very important. But, oh, there, that, she must be the maid of honor. They must be exceptionally close. Those two are very close. And, oh, here comes the bride. Well, there's no mistaking her. I can tell by the way she's dressed. So when God gives this vision to Isaiah, and Isaiah sees Adonai sitting on a throne, and he notices that the train of his robe fills the entire temple, he sees that here is a king like no other that I've ever seen in my life. And Isaiah was a part of the aristocratic organization of Israel. He prophesied before kings. But he's never seen a king like this. Adonai is the sovereign one. So when the psalmist and his company, the congregation of God, the people of God, they're not looking down. They're not looking down. They're looking up. They're looking up to Yahweh, our Adonai. And notice what they say. Oh, Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name. Majesty being beauty. Beauty, dignity. Name being reputation. God has a reputation, an impeccable reputation. He's the creator. He's the covenant keeper. He's an inexhaustible, self-sustaining life. He's holy. He's God of the living. He's a deliverer. He's a deliverer. God raises Moses up to deliver Israel out of Egypt from the taskmaster of Pharaoh, but God comes in the person of Jesus Christ to deliver his people from the taskmaster of the evil one, from the taskmaster of sin, amen? He is a deliverer. Now, in conclusion here, my first point that I want to make in this series is we've got to quit looking down. I realize this is a really basic message, but I make no apologies for it. And I'll tell you why I make no apologies for it, because I catch myself complaining. And when I catch myself complaining, I need this message. And I have a sneaking suspicion that I'm in company. As soon as we think that we've graduated from this stuff, it's not long after that that we're going to find ourselves complaining and carrying on like people who don't know Yahweh. Like people who don't know that God is sovereign. You see, as long as we're looking down at, at creation all of the time, as long as we're looking down, things aren't so good, are they? It's, it's August. It's probably not going to be 72 degrees today. We're probably not going to have a relative humidity of 40%. But Yahweh came in the person of Jesus Christ to redeem us. How easy we, easily we lose track of that. How are we going to minister to a lost world if we're losing track of that? See, I think this is such an important message for us that I want to do a whole series on this song. 
And our starting point has to be looking up. It's impeccable that we get this right. Notice that the psalmist starts out looking up in verse 1. What is he doing in verse 9? And what is his company, the congregation of the people of God, doing in verse 9? This is kind of a cool psalm because if you memorize verse 1, you got verse 9 memorized too. You see that? O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. Has that truly impacted us? Let me give you one last little thought. Isaiah 45.22 in the old King James translation reads something like this. Um, Look unto me and be saved. All of you ends of the earth, for I am God and there is no other. A young boy by the name of, by about 15 years of age, by the name of Charles Spurgeon, once sat in a little chapel as a preacher expounded on that verse. And as he told his congregation, look, look, look. Spurgeon's heart was eternally changed as he quit looking down and he looked up and came to faith and Yahweh our Adonai. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this great word that you've given to us, Father. We are often so unsatisfied because we are looking down. This creation is not meant to give us full satisfaction. You have designed it in such a way that it will not give us full satisfaction. You've designed it in a way that we would look upward. And as we look down, kicking and rebelling against your design, we're uh, we're certainly only to become frustrated, embittered, angry because things aren't the way they should be. But as we look up, we find the great streams of healing water coming to our souls. And oh, Father, help us to take this message out to encourage everyone to look up. Tomorrow, perhaps, as we hear some of the complaints, Father, perhaps you will give us opportunities just to gently and lovingly encourage one another to look up. Father, we pray for your grace that our loved ones in this community would be able to do and empowered to do just that, to look up. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.